Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Benjamin Wittes, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the editor-in-chief of the website Lawfare. Over the past year, Wittes has become one of the most prominent commentators on the Robert Mueller investigation into the Trump campaign in Russia, thanks in part to his friendship with James Comey and his time reporting at the Justice Department. He's also emerged as a strong critic of Trump and the GOP, despite being, in his own words, an apologist for the national security state. Recently, with Jonathan Rauch, he wrote a piece in The Atlantic entitled Boycott the Republican Party, urging even conservatives to vote for Democrats for Congress until the Trump nightmare passes. Benjamin Wittes joins me now from Washington, D.C. Benjamin, thank you for being here. Uh, My pleasure. The first question I want to ask you about the Mueller investigation um, is you've been following this very closely from the beginning. Are you thinking about the investigation differently than maybe you did a couple months ago, um, the last stages of this that we've seen and the leaks we've seen and the the 13 Russians being indicted? Um, How are you thinking about it differently than you did several months ago? Well, so I'm not sure that I am, except that it has definitely progressed. So Mueller has played his cards very close to the vest. We know very little about what he's thinking or planning other than what he's done. Um, And so there have been more actions uh, since a couple months ago. And therefore, we have more data points to read, more tea leaves. But we still have essentially no information about his thinking, his plans, or his uh, directional momentum other than what we can read. And so, you know, there's definitely more information to play with, but, you know, it is still consistent potentially with a pretty wide range of possible theories of the case. Do you see any ways in which the the Mueller investigation, from what they've you know, released publicly, usually in the form of indictments or statements before courts, that they're intentionally trying to sort of keep their hand hidden and that that they're sort of signs that they're not revealing things that they could be revealing and there's strategic reasons for that, or they're just doing what you can and, you know, it is what it is. So it's a bit of both. I think they are, there are settings in which they've decided to be communicative and there are all other settings where they have decided to not be communicative. So the setting in which they've decided to be communicative is the indictment of the 13 Russians, where they gave a lot of information. um, And they really used that indictment to tell a story. In addition, with both the Papadopoulos and Flynn uh, statements of offenses, they kind of judiciously let out information about subject matter, about certain meetings and content and things that were said. Beyond that, they've said essentially nothing. And they their other documents have been exceedingly spare in terms of the communicative uh, nature of them. And I do think that's on purpose, that they're they're trying to say as little as possible, except when they say a lot. And is the reason that you would try to say as little as possible because this is what prosecutors would do in any case? Or do the do the sensitivities here involved the sort of the sense that Trump may try to further uh, interfere with the investigation, things like that? that uh, or is this just sort of by the book the way you would do it? Well, it's a little of both. Um, so number one. 
you know, standard prosecutorial practice is to uh, be quite judicious with, you know, investigative sensitive information. And, you know, yes, there are prosecutorial leaks in the federal system. They're not especially common and good prosecutors, you know, don't do it very much. So that's the baseline condition. In addition, I think there are, you know, there are a number of other factors here that all kind of push in the same direction. One is that Mueller follows Comey, whom the president has been, you know, publicly uh, tweeting about as a leaker, right? And uh, though that's actually, uh, you know, quite untrue, um, it is you know, something that would make you, if you were in Mueller's shoes, very careful not to do anything that would uh, give ammunition to the president to discredit the investigation. In addition, there are a number of people who have been in similar positions in the past who have taken different approaches to communications with the press, particularly Ken Starr, who had uh, uh, fairly capacious communications with the press, one of which ended up in a in a not him personally, but one of his staffers ended up you know facing charges about uh, uh, releasing grand jury information. And Lawrence Walsh, the Iran Contra special prosecutor, had uh, also had a you know a fairly open relationship. Um, now, leaving aside the question of whether any or all of those communications were improper or proper, and there is a you know a real range of of attitudes toward how much should be a prosecutor in these high profile settings should be engaging publicly, and the, it's not obvious that the answer is zero, but it is obvious if you're Bob Mueller in this situation and you have the benefit of hindsight of how those situations worked out for the prosecutors in question that it probably better to say nothing. And um, particularly in an environment in which the White House is leaking constantly and in which the defense bar, it's not even a leak when the defense bar does it, they're allowed to do it, right? And so just to make the strategic decision, the amount of information coming out of this organization, except what we say in court, is going to be zero, is clearly a wise and smart move in my view. It's sort of striking. I mean, before before Mueller was appointed, um, both before and after the Comey firing, we saw, I mean, I guess it wasn't that far between the Comey firing and Mueller's appointment, but we saw just incredible leaks sort of from the bureaucracy. And I think the sort of conventional wisdom about that has been, <clears throat> excuse me, people in the bureaucracy were worried about what would happen to this investigation or what was going to happen. And so they were leaking this stuff. And then when Mueller was chosen, he took over and sort of put a lid on that. And I think you also see just the corollary to that would be nothing about the indictment of these 13 Russians leaked, presumably because they do not have Washington defense lawyers who are talking to reporters. Um, is that is that sort of your sense, too, that the, the leaks have largely stopped because people have confidence and people within the bureaucracy have confidence in Mueller? And, and alternately, that most of the leaks that we see in these big uh, stories that you uh, link to on your on your social media, um, on your Twitter, um, that essentially those are coming from defense lawyers often? Let me hold your first question for the end because I think it's the most complicated one, which is why has the government side stuff dried up? Uh, broadly speaking, I think there are three 
groups of maybe four groups of sources uh, for the overwhelming majority of these stories. One is, as you say, the defense bar. The second is uh, the witnesses themselves. Now, a lot of the witnesses themselves are people who work in the White House, people who work in, you know, in the campaign. Uh, and these people, for lots of other reasons, have independent relationships with a lot of the reporters in question. So they talk. Um, they are generally much freer than, I mean, you know, you're assuming the information's not classified. There's often not much ethical impediment to talking uh, to a reporter about stuff that happened that you were involved in or stuff that you've heard around. Number three is Congress. There are multiple congressional investigations of many aspects of these things. And Congress is, you know, this will be shocking, uh, not the most leak-proof organization in the world. Oh, um, oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, and then the fourth element where I think, you know, a, a certain amount of stuff is coming from is other people who get wrapped up in stuff. So, you know, any investigation like this involves a number of ancillary witnesses who get pulled into things um, because they're because they're there, because they, you know, interacted with people. And these people have no obligations of confidentiality. And by the way, the investigation can be quite disruptive to their lives. And they uh, may have no particular reason to keep anybody's confidence. Um, and so they talk. And the sense in which we have visibility into Mueller's group's thinking is that, you know, they ask questions, right? And so you can get a sense of at least to some degree of what they're, what they're thinking about by what they're asking questions about. And so if you have access to a large group of witnesses or a medium group of witnesses and you can ask them what sort of questions were you asked – you learn all kinds of things about, you know, what the prosecutors are thinking about. Uh, but it's quite indirect. Uh, and there's danger in it because most good investigators will ask questions more broadly than the core focus of what they're thinking about. And so you get people you, – you've definitely had some stories that are, you know – interpreting relatively stray questions as significant investigative lines. Yeah, I've I've thought that about several of the stories that they there were they were the sorts of questions that you'd think that any investigator would ask no matter what the focus of the the actual focus, you know, what they actually wanted to narrow down on was. And so the value of it seems not. But what what were you going to say about the bureaucracy earlier that I you said it was the most complicated part of the question? Right. So, you know, the the question of whether leaks from the bureaucracy have calmed down because of uh, increased confidence as a result of Mueller is a complicated one because a lot of information that would previously have been available has has kind of dried up at this point. So, you know, in the early months, late months of the Obama administration, early months of the Trump administration, there was this uh, flood of intelligence reporting about the Russia operation and it shocked people, right? And a certain amount of that information leaked, right? Most famously, the flynn Kislyak, uh conversation, right? Um, 
so one possibility is that your hypothesis is correct and everybody's like, okay, Mueller, Bob Mueller will take care of it. I don't need to leak this now. But another possibility is that the uh, the shocking things that developed in that period kind of leaked in relatively early and they, are, they have not been replaced by other streams of similarly shocking information because uh, – that is now being handled by the investigation. It's not a sort of ongoing reporting stream that results from the intelligence community's assessment that President Obama ordered, you know, late last, uh, late in 2016. L- let me ask you just note one qu- last question about the way Mueller and his investigators might be operating, which is that in an investigation like this, you're dealing with politically explosive material. Uh, there have been rumors that people – I mean the, the president's former campaign manager and national security advisor have both uh, fallen um, victim to indictments. There are rumors that people in the president's own family, including his son-in-law, may get indicted it, and, and also rumors that that would set the president off and as well as there have been news reports that the president would especially be set off by the Mueller team looking into his business and financial interests. And so – when you're doing that, do you think – is there a sort of a conscious sense of, well, if we're going to invite indict the president's son-in-law – and again, I'm not saying that that's on, in the cards. I'm just offering this as an example – that you know, we would wait till the end to do this. We would not – we would pursue other lines of inquiry first in case our investigation shut down. Do you think those sorts of considerations um, are ones that the special counsel has to make and would make? I don't know the answer to that question. I am – you know, I, I am not – in touch with anybody in the special counsel's office. I have no inside information of any kind. I think there are two possible ways for the special counsel's office to think about that question. One is to say our job is to be total straight shooters and do our job with no strategic calculation as to the nature of the people we're dealing with. And the president has certain powers that no other subject of such an investigation would have, like the power to pardon everybody involved or the power to fire us or the power to obliterate the office that we work for. Um, But we actually can't control any of that and it's wrong for us to take any of that into account in the way we do our jobs. And so what our job is is to ignore that, treat, treat all that as noise And that's actually, if he exercises those authorities, that's the political system's responsibility to respond to that, not ours. That would be one way to think about it. The other way to think about it is to say, inherent in conducting an investigation like this is the task of protecting an investigation like this. And so you want to, you know, given what uh, Jim Comey called in his congressional testimony, the nature of the person. You don't want to forget who you're dealing with and you want to behave in a way that maximally protects the investigative equities uh, and the structure and independence of the investigation from predations by the president and his people. And that means, you know, that means making certain strategic calculations about when you bring whatever cases you're going to bring in such a way that they would be minimally likely to trigger events that would be 
uh, highly damaging to the investigation or preclude the successful completion of the investigation. Now, which is the way that Bob Mueller is thinking about it? I don't know. Stay tuned for more from Benjamin Wittes right after a break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I've really tried my best to read up on what would happen if Trump ordered Rod Rosenstein to fire Robert Mueller um, or... uh, I like the phrase tried my best because it implies that the it implies that you've figured out in the course of doing that, that 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 the... Uh, that there, there are a lot of variables there, and it's complicated. Hey, I uh, I'm an amateur at this. I uh, <laughs> well, no, I uh, I I've uh, maybe not my best. I've I've tried almost my best to figure this out, and um, it's very unclear to me what would happen if Trump found Rod Rosenstein or someone else in the Justice Department to fire Mueller. What would then happen into the investigation as it now exists? Do you feel like you have a good sense of exactly what would happen after that? Uh, the reason you don't have a good sense of what would happen is that there are uh, too many conditional clauses that we don't know how likely they are. And the answer is radically different depending on uh, what the – you know how many of them you string together and whether you – give a yes or no to the ifs attached to them. So let me tick some of them off. And, you know, uh, so one is if the president ordered Rod Rosenstein to do that, would Rod Rosenstein consent and do it or would he resign or get fired instead? The second question is if the president, if he resigned instead, would, um, you know, would the person who is next in line, who presumably is Noel Francisco, the solicitor general, would he carry it out or would he also resign? Uh, and so you get into this first level question of how many Justice Department officials would have to be fired or resigned? How many Saturday nights would you have to massacre? How many people before you got to somebody who was actually willing to fire Bob Mueller? Second variable is are we imagining a situation in which there was some plausible suggestion that Bob Mueller had done anything wrong that warranted his firing? Or is this simply a Donald Trump temper tantrum? That probably conditions the question of how many Justice Department officials you would have to decapitate in order to get it done. Um, but it also conditions, I think, to some degree, the public and the political system's reaction to it. Number three, um, what would the congressional reaction to this be? Do you have uh, a Republican complacency similar to the one that you had over the firing of Jim Comey? Or do you have an alarmed sense that this is a game-changing Nixon-like moment that requires a kind of galvanizing a kind of response? Uh, and then fourth, there is a – for technical legal reasons, it is probable that only Rod Rosenstein or somebody who would replace him can actually under the regulation 
fire the special prosecutor. So if the president is unable to get somebody to do it, does he attempt to do it himself using some sort of broad inherent executive power theory or does he rescind the reg? The mechanics of exactly how it happens probably matter a great deal. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, I guess the the other part of my question is sort of this was an FBI investigation before Robert Mueller took over. Would 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 it sort of automatically revert to being an FBI investigation again? I think it would. Um, so it is at this it is at this point a series of indicted cases, among other things. Those would, uh, you know, if you if you fired Bob Mueller but didn't get rid of his office. Uh, there would still be an office of special counsel that would then lack a head and somebody would presumably be sort of acting in that capacity and maybe you'd have to appoint another one. That's what happened to the special prosecutor's office in Watergate. That's how we got Leon Jaworski. That did not work out well for Richard Nixon. If, on the other hand, he sought to rescind the regulation, get rid of the office in its entirety, that would not cause the cases that the office has garnered pleas in or issued indictments in to disappear. They would revert to the Justice Department. Um, and so you would have to then have figure out what bureaucratic part of the Justice Department would inherit the different parts of the investigation. That's a mess. And I, I don't think the FBI would, uh, would just stop investigating it because the structure in which they were working had, had, had vanished. Uh, so I think it's, a, it's very much an open question. And again, it depends on the sort of mechanics by which you tried to effectuate this. I'm curious, looking back on 2016, uh, you mentioned James Comey, who I know you're friends with, um, how you think James Comey and the FBI in that year dealt with, look at, you know, in hindsight now, the investigation into Hillary Clinton and the emails and the investigation that I guess had started by that point of Trump campaign associates um, and some connection to Russia. So first of all, I want to say this: these are matters that are currently before an inspector general who has uh, investigated a number of areas related to this energetically and is apparently nearing the end of his process and getting ready to you know, release reports on it. And so I guess the first thing I would say is, you know, let's wait and, you know, see what the full factual landscape is. And so everything I'm about to say is tentative. Um, that said, look, I mean, I, I think the FBI was put in an, in an impossible position in 2016. And uh, I have never argued that there was no basis to fault decisions that were made by, in the Bureau, including, including by Comey. And in fact, I was one of rel a relatively small number of people who raised public questions about the handling of the Clinton email matter back last in, in July of 2016 when Comey released his statement. I, I, uh, I, I actually at the time wrote a piece saying that I didn't dissent from his decision to do it, but I was uncomfortable with it. And, you know, a lot of people have discovered they, discovered they were outraged about what Comey did in July in October when he revisited the question, very few people said in public in July that they were uncomfortable with what he did. 
Uh, and all that said, I think he was in an impossible position and that there was no good way to handle it. And I'm, uh, you know, I think the the way he chose to handle it backfired in a big way, whether or not, by the way, it actually contributed to the electoral outcome. The, the fact that large numbers of people think that it did is itself a problem. I also think, by the way, that the attorney general and the deputy attorney general deserve a lot of responsibility here that people don't think about much. But the attorney general was the one who got – who allowed the, the candidate's husband to get on her plane and then did not recuse herself. And the deputy attorney general and the attorney general both were in a position to – direct the FBI director not to make the public statement that he did, and they didn't do it. And so I think there is the basic problem here was that we had uh, a grenade in the room, and we have one person who has, to a fault, a tendency to fall on every grenade and take responsibility for all kinds of things that are perhaps, may, you know, it are probably other people's departments. Uh, and in an, the other hand, we had a bunch of people who ran from the room. Um, and that's a toxic combination. You know, so I, w- I, would, never, I would never argue that, that Jim's handling of this is, is above criticism. But I also think the, the full picture uh, would reasonably involve criticism of a bunch of other actors as well. What about the Trump angle to it? Um, there was there was infamously a piece in the New York Times, I believe, on October 31st, 2016, saying the FBI saw no link between Trump and Russia. And it seemed that the FBI, that that, that that was sort of kept much more under wraps. Do you think that there was a mistake made there? I know Harry Reid, I believe, released a letter sort of ex- saying that uh, Comey had a lot of information about this, that he was he was not talking about the way he was about the Clinton administra- the, the Clinton email investigation. Do you think that's a fair critique or are people misunderstanding that? I think that critique is wrong. Um, so first of all, the parallelism that people want to draw or between the Clinton investigation and the Trump investigation is, is a – you say, why did you handle one one way and why did you handle one the other way is that, – that's an error and it's an error for two reasons. One is Comey announced the closing of the Clinton investigation in July he, when they were when, – when he thought the investigation was finished, right? He announced – the investigative conclusion of a finished investigation. The Trump investigation had just begun. You don't talk about an investigation that is just starting, right? Um, And so they were in completely different places. Now, the wrinkle here, of course, was that the perception that the Clinton investigation was done turned out to be wrong, right? Because they, they ended up in October having new information that they felt they had to take steps on. But when they issued those statements and made the comments that they made, they did it because they thought they were done with the investigation. And so if there's an appropriate time to say what your investigative conclusions and actions are going to be, surely it is when you're done. Uh, The Trump investigation starts in July, according to uh, Comey's later testimony and a number of other documents. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, when things are in 
an early, very preliminary stage, uh, that's precisely when you don't talk about them. Uh, the second reason, and the more important reason, is that one of these investigations was a, counter a counterintelligence investigation. These are the most sensitive investigations in the United States government. The Trump investigation started with an allied foreign intelligence service giving us information about George Papadopoulos. The New York Times has since reported that it was the Australians. And so when people say, you know, including Harry Reid, and that you should be going public with, you know, the, the, the material that you are working with in, with respect to Trump, what they're saying is that, you know, you should blow a FISA which was the Carter Page FISA, right? And you should, uh, you know, you should release information about a, a an early phase counterintelligence investigation, and that is simply an unthinkable proposition. And by the way, it remains unthinkable when Devin Nunes, in fact, turned around and did it a year and a half right. later, which is what you know. And so, people like me who are really angry about what Devin Nunes did, I don't think it would have been any more appropriate had Harry Reid done it. What did you think of the Times piece? Well, so so first of all, the Times piece, time piece was wrong, right? Yeah. It, it, and so I don't know how it was sourced, right? But clearly it was reporting that the FBI has decided that there's you know nothing substantial here at precisely the time that in fact the FBI had gone to the, the FISC and asked for asked for a, a FISA on Carter Page and was actively investigating the uh, the Papadopoulos material. And so, I, I, I mean, I, you know, it would be very interesting to know who the Times was talking to at that time and whether the Times's error was a function of people having tamped the story down who actually knew what they were talking about and misled the New York Times or whether the Times trusted people who in fact didn't know what they were talking about. But it is not – when you read that story in retrospect, it is not an accurate reflection of the state of the investigation at that time. More from my guest right after the break. You gave a quote to New York Magazine in a profile of you there um, where you said – I'll just read you the quote and our listeners the quote. Quote, I don't lead any kind of resistance. I keep warning all of your newfound – of our newfound admiring readers that I'm not part of that world. You know, the day we have sane government again, including, by the way, sane conservative government, I'm going to go back to being an apologist for the national security state. And I won't even have to go back to it because that's actually what I am. And um, I, I – uh, Word. Well, yeah, uh, I was going to say there's some exclamation marks uh, in the text, which I which that word uh, uh, played out. But um, I, I guess my question for you is, w without getting into an argument with you about the national security state right now, has Trump getting elected and ostensibly being in charge of the national security state made you think differently at all about the power it should have knowing that this was possible? So that is an extremely complicated question, and uh, the short, the very short answer to that is no. And the reason is that we've now had a year and a half of, of I have been arguing for 10 years that the stakes associated with well-crafted, strong national security authorities particularly in the counterterrorism and counterintelligence and espionage space, are much lower for a democratic society than people in the human rights and civil liberties communities and much of academia believe. That in other words, you can have responsible detention 
regimes uh, for for you know Al Qaeda figures. You can have strong NSA collection programs. Uh, you can have uh, a drone strike program, and that the consequences for democratic government of doing that are actually not that we are on a slippery slope to to uh, 1984. We now have truly dangerous, menacing presidential leadership. And I am one of the people, I think the record will reflect this, who most accurately predicted what Donald Trump would actually do in office in these, in, you know, using presidential authorities. Um, and I did it during the campaign. And one of the things that he has not done is abused any of these authorities. He hasn't, you know, we haven't had any uh, roundup of people for detention purposes under military authorities. We haven't seen sort of drone strikes or the use of, you know, um, terrible, uh, you know, killer robots. We haven't seen uh, abuse of surveillance authorities. The NSA isn't part of, you know, any... Uh, any of Donald Trump's abuses. What has Donald Trump abused? He has abused not the marginal coercive powers of the federal government that are well-regulated in statute and law supervised by courts. He hasn't abused any of those authorities. He's abused the core powers of the, the presidency, the basic discretionary judgments, I will hire this person and fire this person. I will... I will or won't allow my family to use the government as uh, as a nesting spot. Uh, I will, I, you know, I will, I will or won't allow uh, the Justice Department to remain for enforcement purposes apolitical. I will or will not abuse the power of presidential speech. These are not at the margins of presidential authority. They're the core powers of the president. And it's interesting to me that in all the debates, all the debates we have about uh, marginal counterterrorism authorities over the last post 9-11 era, they're all about the marginal powers of the federal government. The, and we've lost sight of what a truly abusive human being does with the powers of the presidency, which is abuse the core discretionary authorities of it. And so I feel like that's what I've been warning about for a long time. I get right. I guess the response would be, number one, we haven't had a major terrorist attack. And number two, Trump is someone who is number one, incompetent, and two, has maybe more petty grievances than large scale grievances. And that if someone different were to take the oath of office, that the things that we're talking about could actually be more of um, a concern. Well, let me ask, let me turn the question around and say, when you look at the federal government today, what scares you more? The Justice Department or the NSA, yeah, the Justice Department. But I, I, I would just, I would just add um, that could be my own bias as the person I am, and it could also be partially the fact that I think we're dealing with a particular kind of uh, authoritarian personality rather well, but, than a different kind of authoritarian personality. But, but your point is taken. I want, I want to suggest that there's another reason, 
which is that the NSA operates under a comprehensive statutory scheme with respect to its ability to interact with you. We have a lot of experience with the fact that those rules are basically complied with kind of neurotically. And we have seen zero evidence that Donald Trump has tried to change those rules. And by the way, it would be a heavy lift for him to try to change those rules. And the result is, and by the way, to the extent that he has tried to change those rules, he's tried to, you know, it's by getting in the way of reauthorization of 702, which is to say he's tried to weaken those rules or he's inadvertently, without knowing what he was doing, trying to weaken uh, trying to strengthen those rules by making them more restrictive, by getting rid of 702. And I think the so, he has an instinct for the soft spot. And the soft spot, the place where you could actually do tyrannical stuff in the United States government, is actually not the intelligence community. And it's not an accident that the intelligence community has been something he has had to attack. And it's because they live by rules. And he hates rules. I'm unfortunately going to get kicked out of the studio in a minute, so we cannot continue this. But Benjamin Wittes is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the editor-in-chief of the website Lawfare. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining me on I Have to Ask. It's been a pleasure. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Thanks for additional help from the one and only Steve Lichtai at our headquarters in Washington. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Are you looking for more great shows from Slate? El Gabfest en Español is Slate's first Spanish-language podcast, led by award-winning Mexican journalist, broadcaster, writer, and my friend, Leon Krause. The hosts, all leading Spanish-language journalists, discuss the news of the week in a no-holds-barred lucha libre. They focus on U.S. politics and current events, but they also take on international news as well as sports and culture. Every week, they have a newsmaking guest. Recent invitees have included Jorge Ramos, the chef Jose Andres, and Senator Tim Kaine, who is wonderfully fluent in Spanish. Also, as a Slate Plus member, which you all should be, there's an English-language segment so that non-Spanish speakers can hear at least some of the panelists' thoughts. Check out El Gabfest en Español every Thursday morning.